This message is entitled, The Process of Temptation and Sin, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Today, in the last day on the doctrine of sin, I would like to give you a summary chart, first of all, and then I would like to go back to Genesis 3 and take ten very practical steps in the process of temptation and sin. So, we're not going to be touching most of the theology or the doctrine of sin. And therefore, I want to have a framework where you can fit things in as you move through your study of the Word of God. Number one, the kind of sin we're talking about. Number two, the fact of sin. Number three, the penalty for that sin, for the transmission of sin, and five, the remedy. Now what I'd like to do is take each of three major areas of sin in the Word of God and run them through that set of titles. The three kinds of sin in the Word of God that we deal with, they are inherited sin, imputed sin, and personal sin. So taking, first of all, that which may be called inherited sin, the fact of it is seen in the scripture in Psalm 51, 5, in sin did my mother conceive me. By the way, that's not talking about the sexual act. Talking about the nature, the condition speaking of inheritance. The same thing is expressed in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we are by nature children of wrath, speaking of inherited sin. As we are born, in other words, we are born sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The penalty for that sin is spiritual death. And the way we receive it, or the mode of transmission, is mediate. It is mediated through the race from parent to child. And the remedy for that sin is, on the one hand, redemption, and on the other hand, the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is, Christ has paid the price for our sin. That's redemption, the price paid. And receiving that, we begin. And then by the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have the application of the price paid to the life. So the remedy is in the redemption of Christ in the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, going back to the second kind of sin brought forth in the Word of God, is imputed sin. That is, sin that is accounted to me, or reckoned to me. And that would be spoken of in Romans 5.12 and following as a case in point. By the one sin of the one man, Adam, we all sin, so that the race sinned in Adam. That goes back to our talk yesterday of the unity of the race. 
we all sin in the one sin of the one man, Adam, and the result or penalty of that sin is physical death. It started with the committing of the sin, and it will be finalized in eternal death. When God said, ye shall surely die, very literally that would be rendered, dying thou shalt die. The process started with the first sin. Man there began to die. The transmission of that penalty and that sin is immediate. Not immediate, but immediate. That is, we were all in Adam. And the sin was imputed to the race in Adam. The remedy for that is the imputed righteousness of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, As in Adam all die, so in Christ are all made alive. That is, how many are in Adam? All mankind. How many are in Christ? All of those who receive Christ by faith. All in Adam die. All in Christ are made alive. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us or reckoned to us. Thirdly, in the Word of God, there is personal sin, acts of sin that we commit. Such verses as 1 John 1, 9 deal with that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The result of that sin, personal sin, is the loss of fellowship in the case of the believer. The transmission of the sin is none. This is personal. It's not transmitted from one to the other. And the remedy for it is twofold, justification and forgiveness. The reason Christ can act as he does in the forgiveness of his sin is because of the price that has been paid. I stand there before him, therefore, as a sinner, minus my sins, forgiveness, plus the righteousness of Jesus Christ, justification. The imputation of the righteousness of Christ is the basis upon which Christ justifies me or declares me righteous. So that as a Christian, I am a sinner minus my sins plus the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has been imputed to me on the basis of the price paid by Jesus Christ and my reception of that. Now, everything you study in the area of sin in the Word of God basically could come then under one of these kinds of sin and one of these areas, the fact, the penalty, the transmission, and the remedy. So, though we won't go through the whole thing, you at least have there a chart which in your study will enable you to fit the pieces together. You've got the overall. Now, what I'd like to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3 and look extensively at the process of temptation and sin. There are some very suggestive thoughts along this line in Addison Leach's book, Interpreting Basic Theology. It's not a profound outline. 
We're simply taking the third chapter of Genesis and moving through, step by step, the process of temptation and sin. Remember that Genesis 2 gave to us a knowledge of the understanding of man. Genesis 3 gives to you understanding concerning sin. And though Genesis 3 speaks of the original sin, the first sin, yet the process that was used in alluring Eve into the trap is exactly the same process that the devil uses today. And I think if we'll look at this very carefully, that it should be extremely instructive for us as we seek to be a victor through Christ over the temptation that the tempter would put before us. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The first thing that becomes obvious to you here in the process of temptation is that the tempter had caught the ear of the victim. Eve had begun to listen to evil. She obviously was already engaged in dialogue with the devil when he asked her the question, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Sin starts by listening to the wrong sources. Sometimes we have said that sin breaks fellowship with God. I think that has a problem in it. The more I think about that statement, the more I wonder if a better statement is not that you sin because you broke fellowship with God. Fellowship, I take it, involves talk. It involves being together. It involves listening to one another. And as long as Eve was listening to the right source, she wasn't having any problems. But when Eve began listening to the devil, she was obviously not at that time listening to God. She had begun listening to the wrong source, and that was the first step of the process toward the sin. When one gets out of fellowship with God, when you are not keeping a hotline to God, so to speak, then you are engaging in the first step of leaving yourself vulnerable to the strategic attack of Satan, which goes back to demonstrate again the thesis that I've talked about many, many times now. You are what you think. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So that right from the time of your listening to the enemy, you are thereby programming into your mind the product that he's going to bring forth. Now, there's a lot of exhortation that we could make along that line, and I think that the Spirit of God can probably zero in on several things in our own lives at this point. Several weeks ago, I was staying in a home where 
the young man in the home whose room I was using had gone off to a particular Christian training place, school. When I was putting my clothes away and opening the drawers of the dresser to put my clothes in the drawer, I hit the top drawer and it was loaded with Playboy and Penthouse and well-worn ones. I kept thinking, here's a guy who's gone off to Christian school, and here's a guy whose diet is in Playboy and Penthouse. I don't think it's insignificant today that Playboy has gotten up to six million in circulation, and uh, now Penthouse is vying for honors with them. We need to think back to the source. I have students from time to time say, well, you know, we're dealing with a very sophisticated world, and we don't want to be naive in this world. We really need to know what is going on in the world. And therefore, they build a rationale for visiting all of the X-rated movies and so on and so forth on the basis that, after all, you've got to know how people are living and how they think. How does God meet your need by participating in all that? That was the devil's suggestion. The devil's suggestion to Eve was that you have to experience it in order to know it. We suggested to you yesterday that God wasn't trying to keep knowledge from Adam and Eve. God was seeking to get them to get it the right way. He gave them the truth, and he would give them more of it. But they decided to go the devil's way. You don't have to participate in filth to be able to help people who are encumbered by filth. If your background happens to have taken you through some filth, it may be that you learn some lessons through that that enable you to help people. But I don't find that I have to have cancer in order to help a person with cancer. I don't have to have had a baby in order to help a mother who has a baby. There are truths that we understand, which if appropriately applied, will bring the proper solution. And that's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The first step is that they were listening to the wrong sources. Now you say, well, my, if, if we followed that procedure, we'd have to go out of the world. And I recognize that one has to draw some line of balance here. Else we become like the Pharisees who closed their eyes and walked down the street so they wouldn't see anything that would defile them. And then they ran into a wall and bashed their nose. <laughs> Obviously, I can't get away from it. I'm in the world, but I'm not to be of the world. That's not what we're talking about, and most of us understand that. What do you feed on? Who are you talking to? Psalm 1 the counsel of the ungodly, the seat of the scornful. Where is your fellowship? Who are you listening to? That was the first thing. Eve was listening to the wrong source. She was listening to the devil's philosophy. Now, the second thing you know is that the devil finds that to be a very wide-open opportunity for him. And so he begins his first line of attack. The second thing you note is the first line of attack on the part of the devil. Yea, hath God said, 
Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. What was it? He suggested that God is not good. He injected a doubt about the goodness of God. So he begins to hit at the character of God. He doesn't want us to look at what God is like. Keep looking at what man is like and all of his filth, and nothing will ever change. But you start looking at what God is like, and things begin to change. So what does the devil want to do? He wants to hit the character of God. He wants to drag God down to make God like we are. So we have the contemporary caricatures of God. And that's not a new pattern, that's an old pattern. It goes right back to his first strategy. The first thing the devil did, the first line of attack, was to attack the goodness of God. Now, the same kinds of questions are raised today. He said, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And today someone says, in tearing down the goodness of God, yea, is it true that not everyone will go to heaven? You mean that you serve a God who's going to send some people to hell? What kind of a God is that? And so people come up with a doctrine of a dirty bully God in the Old Testament, a bloody God, a wrathful God. Or somebody else comes along and thinking about the Christian life and they say, Yea, are there some things you cannot participate on? You mean there are some restrictions on your Christian life? What kind of a God is that? Who would not let you have everything your dear little heart desires? Restrictions? How can that come along with a good God? They have the same questions today that were being asked by the tempter then. So his first line of attack was to come in and blast away at the goodness of God. Tear God down. Then you note, Eve picks up the argument quickly in the third step. She follows his lead. She says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now notice she becomes the first textual critic. She amends the text. God had said, Don't eat of it. She said, God said, Don't eat of it, and don't touch it. That's what God said. But she took the suggestion of the devil that God is not good, and then she began to carry that a little further. And our children very often do the same thing. Sometimes when you withhold things from them, they'll say, you won't let us have anything. Now you've let them have all kinds of things. But you withheld something, and so they then carry it on and say, you won't let us have anything. That's exactly what Eve was doing. She was amending it. She was carrying it a step further. Make it sound a little worse. Make it sound like God is not good, just like the devil was suggesting. Don't eat it, don't touch it. As though God was saying that there was something magical about this tree, you know. Touch it. Then you notice in the fourth place, the tempter is now able to come with his second line of attack. Eve has picked up the first one. She's carried a little bit further in their dialogue. 
So he comes along now and now denies the truth of God, the veracity of God. Raises a question. Ye shall not surely die. Well, this could not be the truth. Questioning the honesty of God. The serpent, verse 4, said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Now, there's a half-truth there, and it's interesting to observe the devil's technique here. Oftentimes, there is a good dose of good smothering the subtle error that is in something. And people that are not aware of the devil's tactics and are just, you know, real syrupy and sweet and everything is good and lovely and hunky-dory only want to look at the good thing. You know, and I get in a company where people are saying that they're talking about how we ought not to find things that are bad but just all look at the good thing. And I just really feel like a heel because I find that I so often see the things that are wrong. But I find that I'm in very good company when I get back into the Bible, better company than that crowd I was in. Because Paul could say to the Ephesians, for three years, night and day, I warned you with tears concerning the wolves on the outside who would seek to devour you and those on the inside who would twist the doctrine and draw away disciples after themselves. And then I sit listening to these friends of mine who say, my, we just ought to love one another. We ought not to ever say anything about one another. I got a letter yesterday from a professor of a particular seminary who I had criticized to his boss. And he took me apart, guilty of gossip and rumor and all the other stuff. It is the almost the unpardonable sin to ever state the truth if it happens to hurt somebody. Paul didn't feel that way. Why? Because Paul was sensitive to the fact that the devil wraps up error in a lot of truth. He uses God's truth. And if he can slip it in that way, he's not beneath it. And so here he slips in a statement that has a measure of truth in it because on the historical scene it proved to be true that Eve didn't die then when she ate of it. That must have been a traumatic moment when she took and she ate and as her teeth sank in. I wonder what she was thinking. You know, I wonder, I'm not quite sure. You know, God said, but the devil said, I wonder, and she took it, and she said, I didn't die. So God wasn't telling me the truth after all. The fact of the matter is, the devil's statement had a modest amount of truth in it. If she interpreted that as meaning, she would die on the spot. But that's not what God said. God said, dying thou shalt die, very literally. That at the moment she partook, the process of death would start for her which would culminate in eternal death, separation from God eternally, which is the essence of death to be separated. And so, really, the subtlety of the devil here is his timing. Scripture, Hebrews 11, there is pleasure in sin for a season, 
God talks about the wages of sin is death. Somebody comes along and partakes in sin and says, I don't see the wages of sin is death. Eat, drink, and be merry. Having a great time. God says also, there is pleasure in sin for a season. You put the two of those together, you've got the answer to dying, thou shalt die. But he had a modest amount of truth in it. Fifthly, his next appeal is to her unaided human wisdom and her sophistication. Notice, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. God's holding this back from you, because he knows that you'll be as God, knowing good and evil. Now, God wasn't trying to hold back that knowledge. The devil was using it to get her to go another way in disobedience to God. But Eve began to think about that. The more she reasoned on it, the more she rationalized, the more convinced she became that, you know, that would be nice. And her putting of two and two together, her own unaided reason, her wisdom, led her one step further down the track away from God. Same kind of thing happens today. I've often said, if I were the devil and I wanted to really be strategic in my move, I believe the thing I would first attack would be a theological seminary. Because as the seminaries go, so goes the cause of Christ. Here you are at the very headwater of the development of the doctrine of the Word of God. And any subtle twist that the devil can get into a professor's mind is going to be carried to all of those students, who in turn are going to carry it to all sorts of people around the world, millions of people. The same thing could be said of this kind of a situation here. Get to the mind of the teacher. Get to the place where they are disseminating the truth or the lack of it or the compromise of it or the confusion of it. And there you have put your most strategic strokes. I find that one of the greatest challenges is to keep men before the students who are Biblically excellent on the one hand and evangelistically fervent on the other hand. That's no small chore. Because the devil wants us to worship at the shrine of the intellect. And when a man can really get to the place where he worships his own brain, that he's practically lost for the cause of God. And this is what you have in Eve's case here. She is now beginning to worship her own wisdom and her sophistication. There is a risk with knowledge. You can't fight knowledge. You're going to get knowledge. You're going to get it good or bad. But along with the gain of knowledge is another risk that comes. The devil has another plan, and that is to get you in your sophistication now to despise the simpler thing, to make your brain the test of God's truth, to set your mind over the Word of God. It's amazing to me today how many men seem to be spending full time trying to see if they can find some errors in the Word of God. It's amazing how far they will go, to what extent they will go, to find an error in the Word of God if they can. Rather than looking at the whole Word of God and willing to be taught by it, they're looking for the errors in the Word of God. And they're making God be measured by their mind. And this is what Eve is doing here. And you notice the sixth step. And it follows pretty quickly. After she's gone through the process of rationalization, 
Then she makes her sophisticated judgment on the basis of her imaginings. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now, God had said that he provided for all of those things in all the trees of the garden. So she wasn't without. Remember, he said he had given to them the things that would be pleasant to the eyes and that would be good for food. And she would be made wise. They would be made wise by listening to the truth of God. But here is the devil's shortcut to take the thing that is a point of disobedience and to try to get it in another way. Just like the devil tempted Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 to get the kingdoms of this world by another way other than the way God said that they should come. 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17 gives us this same carry through here. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, so on and so forth. So she made her conclusion. She concluded in her own judgment, in her own wisdom, that these things were good. God had said they were not. God had said, no, don't eat of it. She came to the contrary conclusion. God was wrong. She was right. She'd listened to the wrong input and consequently came to the wrong conclusion. So the next step follows here then. After her rationalization, she comes to the conclusion it is good and makes a judgment and she is obviously out of fellowship with God at this point. She has been listening to the input that has been the product of her fellowship with the devil. Many things look good in and of themselves, but they are nevertheless wrong. Then in the next step, she is ready for the overt act. She's ready to commit the outward act. Now I want you to notice you've gone through six steps in the dialogue before she gets to the overt act. And in the overt act, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Result of her previous conclusion. Now there is a process that leads to the sin. James chapter 1 summarizes that process. Let no man say when he is tempted, he is tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There you've got the evolution of temptation and sin. There was that within herself that could respond contrary to God, and there was that within herself which could choose right. She could have chosen right or she could have chosen wrong. She was drawn away of her own lust, the process of thinking, and enticed, and then lust, when it conceived, brought forth sin, and the product of sin is death. The same thing that you've got in Genesis chapter 3 is summarized in James 1, 13 to 15. The temptation then has led to sin. She partakes of the fruit. She played along with it long enough. Now that she has given her mind to it, the act follows through on the mind. In Mark chapter 7, you have the same process being spoken of by Christ. The Pharisees have come to Christ concerning the practices of his disciples and their failure to do the right traditions with regard to washing of the pots and the cups and the hands and so on and so forth, all the things they had added to the law of God. God comes along and says, There is nothing from outside of a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile him. Down to verse 20. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, 
proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Out of the heart of the man, the act comes. So that in the seventh place, you've got the act. And then you'll notice the next step. And again, a subtle one. Misery loves company. Sin loves company. And so she shared the fruit with her husband. Gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. It doesn't give any dialogue here that she had with her husband, and I don't know whether she did or not. If she didn't, she certainly must have been some gal to be this convincing without a long argument, because I have a hard time believing that Adam just didn't have anything to him. He must have had something as the head of the race. He must have had some determination, and I'm sure that he didn't just wilt immediately. But she gave unto her husband, and he did eat. And he became a participant with her. Everyone now is in on the act. And sin is perpetuated to the race through him. And then you'll notice the ninth step. At this point, Adam and Eve hide themselves from each other and run away to hide from God. They become schizophrenic. They can't think right anymore. Verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here's death, which is essentially separation. Death took place at that moment. They now wanted to separate themselves from God. They saw themselves wrong. They saw God wrong. Everything got messed up when they disobeyed God. They could not see God in the right perspective. They could not see themselves in the right perspective. They saw themselves as being naked. Now, they were not any different now than they were before. But something had happened in their constitution which caused them to see themselves differently than they saw themselves before. They had lost their covering. It's an interesting thing to note. In Philippians chapter 2, God talks about our body of humiliation. The old King James says our vile body, our body of humiliation. And Paul says that there is coming a day when we're going to exchange our lowly body, our vile body, our body of humiliation for a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. What is a body of humiliation? Somebody shared with me one time this thought, and I think it has some merit. The person said that the man is the only creature of God that doesn't provide his own clothing. The snake provides its skin. bear provides its fur. The dog provides its hair. The bird provides its feathers. Every creature of God has a clothing for itself. But where does a man go for his clothing to the creatures of God? So we go to the snake for its skin, and we go to the bear for its fur, and we go to the dog for its hair, and we go to the bird for its feathers, go to the sheep for its wool. 
because man doesn't have a covering. Where did man lose his covering? He lost it in the garden. His covering was the glory of God. And when he sinned, he lost the glory of God that enshrouded him before. And when we receive our new body eternal in the heavens, not made with hands, it will be fashioned like unto what? The glorious body of Jesus Christ. All right, number 10. What happens after man hides himself? And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Where have I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And then God dealt with the serpent. What a tremendous stroke of grace. Man listened to the enemy of God and was through a process solicited to evil which evil he performed, blew it, became a sinner. Who initiates the next contact? God. That God in his grace meets Adam where he is. And the same process is that through which we follow today. We start by listening to the wrong source. He gives us a doubt concerning the goodness of God. We amend the text and carry it on. He comes along with a denial of the truth of God. And we follow up on that. The process continues until we commit the overt act. And then we seek to fellowship with those who are of like kind. We don't want to be by the light. The light unveils the darkness, makes us uncomfortable. But even though we're with somebody else, that still doesn't solve our problem. We've got to run off and hide. Because together we recognize our nakedness. And in that kind of a situation, God meets man in grace. And the reason he could meet Adam in grace at that point and not exterminate them from the face of the earth was because Jesus Christ was the Lamb foreordained from before the foundation of the world. That's the only thing that stayed the wrath of God. Otherwise, God in his holiness would have had to have dealt right there with the sin. But God could act in grace because of the provision of Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. Every act of grace that God has performed then has been on the basis of the death of Christ. From the garden onward to the cross, it was looking forward to the death of Christ. From the cross onto the crown, it's looking backward to the death of Christ. But it's all grace. And God's grace is adequate. It's adequate for that sin. It's adequate for our sin. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If we want to protect ourselves from acts of sin, don't start with some program of restraint on that act of sin. 
go back to the beginning of the process. Who are you listening to? Be sure you're hearing from the right source. And that's the most effective deterrent to sin.